I, uh, I met Sean in a hotel room. Actually, I probably met him before that at some point, but we, we were rooming together at an event and uh, spent a couple days in a hotel room with Sean, and that's an interesting uh, experience, as you can imagine. But uh, uh, he's, he's, he was an encouragement to me from the, from the day I met him, and uh, also he was offensive at times. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, he's a good brother. He's, he's stayed in my own home. He's preached at our church. Our people really uh, were blessed uh, that day that he preached. And, and also just given his own story, uh, if you know Sean's background, uh, mirrors a lot of the folks in our own context. And uh, so that was uh, just hearing that and being able to interact with somebody sort of from a similar kind of background was was and remains to be uh, an encouragement for, for our folks. So we love your pastor, and it is a blessing to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts, chapter 19. We're going to look at 20 verses, verses 1 through 20. These are two different stories that, that uh, happen side by side. And I want to read both of them. I want to try to bring them together and make sense of the two together and draw a, a, a picture for you of the hope that we have in the power of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, so let's just begin by reading God's Word, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. And it reads, And it happened that while... Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. And he said, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of, God, of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit announced, uh, er, answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom, the, uh, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came and divulging their practices, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, continued, they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I want to preach to you this morning on this text, and I'm going to tag my sermon, Fraudulent Saviors. I want to think about the fraudulent saviors of our world uh, as we look at the fraudulent saviors of the Ephesian world and how that relates to the true Savior of Jesus Christ. So if you would just pray with me as we begin and let's ask God for his help. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for this congregation. God, I pray for those uh, who are sick this morning. Uh, We ask that you would uh, be with them even now. And for those that are gathered here, Lord, I pray that you would uh, move in our hearts, move in our minds. Give us ears to hear this morning your word. I pray that you would help me as I communicate your truth, that I would indeed communicate your truth and not merely my own ideas. I pray that the people would receive your word, God. For the glory of Christ, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. BG&E, our local electric company, called me a few weeks ago. And I was told that our power was going to be shut off in one hour and 30 minutes because we had not paid our electric bill. And I am sitting in my car thinking, oh my goodness, this is problematic. And then I was thinking, wait a second, I think we paid our electric bill. This is kind of weird. And so I I asked him, I was like, no, I I think we paid our electric bill. Um, There must be some kind of mistake. He's like, no, we we don't have any payment for for August and September. We have a payment for June and July. And so I'm like, hang on one second. So I I pull up my account on my phone and I see, no, we paid August and September. Our electric bill is, is, is paid up. And so I tell him, I said, actually, we did pay the electric bill. Um, so it's, you got an error on your end. And he said, sir, I'm sorry, you know, I don't know what it, it says exactly, but we don't have any record of that. If you could provide with me, uh, me a confirmation number, uh, I could probably get this straightened out on your account. And I said, no, I think you're a scam. And he was like, sir, uh, our, our system is encrypted. Nobody can break into it. You know, I really don't want your electricity to be cut off. Um, just if you could provide your, uh, your uh, confirmation number, I'm sure we can get it straightened out. And I said, tell you what, you said it's going to be cut off in an hour and a half. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an hour and a half to figure out how to cut off my electricity, all right? And if you can cut it off, then I'll know that you are not a scam. And uh, then I hung up. Well, it's been a number of weeks and my electricity is still on, all right? Here's my point. Fraudulent powers cannot mess with my house. And a fraudulent power cannot mess with your house. A fraudulent power has 
no power in this world and in your life. This text of Acts 19 blasts the veil open between us and the spiritual world. As we look at Paul's ministry here in Ephesus, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it was a very profound ministry. His ministry in Ephesus was the most fruitful in the whole book of Acts. We see here in verse, uh, verse 9 and 10 that he takes these Christians into the hall of Tyrannus, and for, for two years he is instructing the Christians every day. Scholars say that he probably worked on his tents from sunup until about noon, and then he instructed in the hall of Tyrannus uh, from about noon until two or three, and then they, they all went back to work. Every day this kind of ministry went on. Extremely fruitful in Paul's life. But also what we see, along with the fruitfulness, is spiritual warfare taking place in Ephesus. And the spiritual warfare that we see highlighted in, uh, in this text alone is, is eye-opening. When Paul later wrote a letter to this same church, anybody can guess what the letter is called? Ephesians? Um, when he wrote a letter to the Ephesian church, what he explained to them was that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But in Ephesians 6 two, he says, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think when they are reading that letter from Paul, they've got to be re- reminded of, of this moment and all of this spiritual warfare that Paul experienced and faced in Ephesus. Now, as we battle the, the challenges and the powers of this life and this world, the powers of darkness, the powers of the spiritual world, and even our flesh. You know, the sadness that we face in life, the feelings of depression perhaps, the feelings of anxiety, the feelings of being so insignificant and so little. As we go through our daily lives, what I want to show you this morning from this text is that all of the saviors or the powers that the world offers for you to battle these things are all frauds. And just as, you know, scam uh, 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 BG&E, our electric company, just as fraudulent BG&E has no power to turn off my lights, these fraudulent powers have no ability to help your life. They have no ability to provide a sense of safety, a sense of significance, because they are frauds. They are also no match for evil. They cannot help you in your battle against evil. And so uh, just getting into this text, I want to draw your attention here to verses 18 and 19. If you would look at that with me, he says, Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
What we see is that when these fraudulent powers are exposed, they become worthless and they become nothing to us. And so what I'm hoping is that we can expose some fraudulent powers, some fraudulent saviors, confess them and divulge them, and then turn to Christ, who alone can help us. In our world today, we are tempted toward fraudulent powers. These things promise significance. These things promise satisfaction. These things promise safety. We believe that there is something out there that we can find that is not provided in here with Christ. I'll give you an example of this. We recently, in the last number of months, got a a cat in our house. Our cat's name is Twilight, and I greatly dislike this cat. Uh, I don't like cats, and I don't like this cat. Uh, The only reason we got the cat is because there was something in our house that I dislike even more than cats, and that was mice. And so we finally gave in, and we said, let's let's give, give a cat a try. And so we got this cat, Twilight. Now, Twilight has everything that a cat would want in our house. He has three floors in our row house three floors of exploration uh, space. He has banisters to climb all over. He has a dog to play with. He has food. He has a litter box. He has a, uh, a, a place like pillows and blankets to purr and to lay. He has a couch to scratch. He has children to play with. But would you believe that every time I open my door of my house... Twilight wants to leave. He wants to escape. And so one day I had uh, cracked a window just a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago or so. I had cracked a window. I didn't think he could get out of it. And you might know that we can't find the cat. We realize the cat is not in the house. He must have got through the window. And so we all go out looking for the cat. And, uh, you know, ten minutes go by. We can't find the cat. My, my, my nine-year-old son is, is crying. I live on a busy road. I'm thinking, like, he's probably hit by now. Uh, it's, uh, the, my family's freaking out. They can't find their beloved animal. And I'm, I'm praying, Lord, if, if it is your will, <laughs> may he not come back. But lo and behold, I hear a meow. And he's in, he's, he's in the neighbor's uh, window, trying to get back in the neighbor's window. He, he chose the wrong house. Uh, And he was freaking out, he was shaking, trying to come back through, through a wrong window. My point is simply this, is he thinks everything is out there that he wants. You know, they say curiosity killed the cat. So true. This cat, by the way, I pulled open my freezer and he jumped into the freezer and I almost closed it and I was thinking, you stupid cat. Like, curiosity really does kill a cat. Anyway, so I I grab this cat. He's freaking out. I bring him back into the house. I set him down. We have a chat. And I'm like, Twilight, where are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? And this reminds me of like when Peter uh, and Jesus have this dialogue. And Jesus says, are you going to leave as well? And Peter's like, where else are we going to go? But for Twilight, the problem is, is he still thinks that there's something better than what we have in our home. Now, as believers, we can be adopted into the family of God, living in the household of God, but still be tempted to believe that there's something else out there that we need to make us happy. Are you with me? 
And it's all of these fraudulent powers. It's all of these fraudulent saviors. All of these things that look so good, that promise to us a sense of significance and safety and satisfaction. But they do not save. And so I want to encourage you this morning to turn to the Savior and to remain with the Savior who saves. I want to break this text down into kind of two simple uh, two, two, two simple sections. The first section is simply this. Uh, how do we know that Christ saves? Number one, the faithful was confirmed. The faithful was confirmed. And secondly, the fraud was confounded. Let me break that down for you. So how do we know that Christ is our true Savior? Number one, the faithful was Confirmed. So I see this in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 19. So Paul is an apostle. Now, apostles, I don't believe, exist today. Apostles were the original carriers of the gospel message of this new revelation of Christ. And since they're coming with a new revelation, that message that they're bringing must be confirmed so that everybody knows that it is legit. Now, this is extremely important because it brings up this question, why do we even believe that what Paul was saying was true? Because, you know, Paul said a lot of things about Jesus and about the gospel and about the Christian life that are new, that are different, that, that are additional than what had been revealed before. So how do we know that this message of Christ And all of the doctrine that we can pull out of Paul's teaching, how do we know that it was legit? Well, this text, uh, in some ways, starts to tell us. In in verse 1, Paul is in Ephesus, and there is this whole group of people, there's 12 of them, there's this whole group of people in Ephesus who had heard, or I'm sorry, who had not heard the gospel. They thought of themselves as believers, but they had not heard, heard the full gospel. And this was, this was Paul's test. Paul asked them, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, they respond, I, I, don't, I don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. Now, there are some traditions today, some, some churches that, that teach that you can believe in Jesus Christ and and uh, that you're a Christian but not yet receive the Holy Spirit uh, and that l- maybe later you'll receive the Holy Spirit and so they disconnect the Holy Spirit baptism from the individual's conversion however I agree with your church's statement of faith uh, I was reading it earlier Sixth Avenue Community Church states that we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Christ, sealing them for the day of redemption, and that he is an abiding helper and teacher and guide. The Holy Spirit, I'm going to read that again, indwells every believer in Christ. And so that's why Paul asks this test sort of question. 
to see if they really actually heard the gospel, to see if they believed in the true gospel. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they hadn't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And so then Paul proceeds in verse 6 to explain to them the gospel message so that they might believe and receive the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 6, it says, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, I don't want to turn my sermon into like a, a seminary lecture or theological debates, but it does bring up some questions on why was it when, when these people did believe and they received the Holy Spirit, why did they speak in tongues and prophesy? Because that is actually not the normal experience throughout the book of Acts. Normally, people receive the Holy Spirit and there are no particular signs attached to it. So why here? Well, my, my, my simple answer is, is that sometimes God gives a receipt in the book of Acts. Let me explain it this way. Uh, if I were to go to the BB&T bank, uh, which is where I do my banking, uh, my, uh, it's, where it, it's the place that keeps my money. If I were to go to BB&T and I were to deposit uh, my you know, millions of dollars of cash into my bank account, they're going to give me a receipt, and it's going to say on there, $3.2 million, right? You guys know what this feels like. And, uh, and I get my receipt from my bank saying that there was a deposit made. There are four times in Acts where God gives the deposit of the Holy Spirit, and then he gives a receipt to prove that that deposit happened. Does that make sense? The, uh, the, the four times are in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 11, and then Acts 19. Let me break that down for you really quick. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you know the book of Acts, Jesus says, you're going to be my, uh, my witnesses throughout all of the world. He says to the Jews, and then to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles, the uttermost parts of the earth, the, the Gentiles. And then as Acts goes, what we see is that uh, the witnesses are going with the gospel message to the Jews and then to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. We see the gospel goes to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit then fills that people group, the Jews, as they believe the gospel. And what does God give them? He gives them a receipt of that deposit and that is the sign that they have received the Holy Spirit, they're speaking in tongues. It happens again in Acts chapter 8. The gospel goes to the Samaritans, and God gives them a receipt, a sign that they have received the same Holy Spirit that went to the Jews. And so they speak in tongues. And then again in Acts chapter 11, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And there again, the receipt is given. They speak in tongues to prove that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Why? Well, I think it's because God wants to show us that the same Holy Spirit that went to the Jews also went to the Samaritans and also went to the Gentiles. There is one people of God, not many. Does that make sense? Now, here in Acts chapter 19, we see a fourth instance where they receive the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Now, why is that? Because we've already seen it go to the Jews, the Samaritans, and then to the, to the Gentiles. Why again in Acts chapter 19 here in Ephesus with, with more Gentiles? Well, I think the reason is simply this. It's because this confirmation or this receipt is not about the, the Holy Spirit going to a different people group. Uh, it's not confirmation 
about a people group. It's confirmation about a particular messenger, and that is the Apostle Paul. Because prior to this, if you were to read through Acts, what we see is that God is mostly using Peter. And, and then there's going to, going to be some who want to pit Peter against Paul and say, well, Jews and Gentiles and all this. And, and, and God is saying, no, the same spirit that filled Peter is the same spirit that is filling Paul. Now, why, why do I say all of this? What's, what's the point? My point is simply this, is that God intervened in history in time, in place, to show, to display, to prove that this messenger, but ultimately this message that is being delivered, is legit. It can be trusted. It comes with power. It comes with confirmation. It comes with a receipt. Does that make sense? So the faithful then is confirmed. Now, this uh, follows in verses 11 and 12 with additional miraculous signs to further confirm the fact that this Apostle Paul is truly bringing the message of God. So look at verse 11. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons uh, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. The emphasis is not about the healings. The emphasis is on what the healings show us. And that is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that has power and that can be trusted. The faithful was confirmed. My second big heading for this text is that the fraud was confounded. While we see Paul in his ministry being confirmed by the Holy Spirit, we immediately then are paralleled in verses uh, 13 through 20 with these frauds that come along. And they try to do something that is spiritual. They try to do something that is powerful. They try to show that their magic arts can do something in in this world that is on par with what God can do through the gospel message. But they are shamed. They are confounded. So let's just look at it. The next scene is almost like a comedy horror movie, which is, I think, one of my favorite genres of movies. Comedy horror. Anybody else? No? All right, one guy. Gotcha. There are these seven brothers. They're they're called the Sons of Sceva. And they are Jewish exorcists. Now, Jewish exorcism is related to mysticism, and it's related to magic. And so these brothers, these sons of Sceva, are looking for the latest formula that they can use, almost like a, a genie, almost like rubbing, rubbing the genie's lamp. Uh, what is the latest formula that we can use that would have power in this world so that we can make things happen, so that we can do something, so that we can see something change? Now what we see immediately is that these seven sons of Sceva have no power and that is because they don't have the Holy Spirit. You see, the power is not in Paul the man. The power is in the God who Paul is proclaiming. The power is not even 
in the name J-E-S-U-S. Or however that sounded in, uh, in their language in, uh, in this day. You know, they're coming along and they're saying, what is the formula? How can we use this? And they're, they're, they're saying exactly what Paul is saying. But there's no power in the syllables and in the consonants. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but there are, there are certain churches today that basically say, if you just say the name Jesus, like the syllables and the consonants, if it just comes out of your mouth, that there's power. Well, there is power in the name of Jesus, amen? But not like that. That's not what the Bible means. The Bible means in the person and the work of who Jesus is, in what his name represents, in his fame, in his glory, in Christ and in Christ alone, but not as some kind of magic formula. And so these guys are just looking for a formula. And so what they do is they walk into a house, and there's this crazy guy in the house. He's got, he, he, he's, verse 15, it says that, that he's possessed with a, a spirit. He's going to uh, interact with them a little bit. They walk into this house where this guy is, is living. And they're going to use this new formula that they found. So in verse 13, they walk into the house and they say, I adjure you. By the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, like I said, there, there is no power in just simply a formula without the Holy Spirit. And enemies recognize true power. The enemy in this case looks at these guys and they're like, he's like, I don't, I, I don't recognize this power at all. Any LeBron James fans in the house? Can I get an amen? Can I get a, no? Well, I'm from, uh, originally from Akron, Ohio, so I'm right now kind of offended. <laughs> um, and uh, LeBron is my man. Um, so, just like all of you, there's a lot of LeBron haters out there, all right? Skip Bayless, who used to work with ESPN, was and remains one of LeBron James' biggest critics. Skip says that LeBron can't shoot. Recently on Twitter, he said that LeBron's got love handles, and he said that LeBron scored 35,000 35, points in 35,000 games. <laughs> it's kind of funny, <laughs> but, it's, but it's rude. <laughs> However, in 2008, after LeBron like dunked over the Boston Celtics, this just amazing dunk, even Skip Bayless said that that was a major move and not everybody can do that. All right, so here's, here's my point. When you have true power, even your enemy recognizes it. Look what happens. These guys go into the house and they bring this formula, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, it says verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
I was at the gym a few weeks ago, and, and I tend to whistle a lot. And so I'm at the gym, and there's a song playing on, uh, through the speakers, and I'm whistling to the song, and this dude in the gym who I don't know looks at me, and he says, could you please stop whistling? And I was like, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? No, I didn't say that. I felt like saying that, and I was studying the text at the time. What, what, what he's saying is, is like, who are you to, to, to tell me anything? You know, like, who, what kind of power are you? What kind of authority do you have? I recognize various authorities, a demon says. I recognize the authority of Jesus. And yeah, you're using his name, but I don't know you. I recognize the authority of Paul, uh, uh, through, through whom the Holy Spirit works. And I, I know him, but... I don't know you. Listen, there's a lot of churches where they talk about recognizing the enemy. And in churches, we talk about these things. Recognize the enemy. Where is the enemy coming at you? And that's good. And the, 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 I'm not, not downplaying that. But there's a, another way that we could ask that question. And that is, does the enemy even recognize you? Would the enemy say, I, I know this guy. I know this girl. Because they have the Holy Spirit in their life. Because they have this true power of the gospel at work that's forgiven their sins, cleansed them all from all unrighteousness, and the Holy Spirit is filling them, has regenerated them, has turned them into a new creation. Does the enemy recognize me or you? The demon here proceeds then to make a mockery of these fraudulent saviors these fraudulent powers the very next scene it says that they are running out of the house naked and wounded verse 17 tells us then after this word spreads through all of ephesus among the jews and the greeks and great fear falls on the residents uh, as the name of the lord of jesus was magnified the result of this scene, of Paul's ministry being confirmed, the faithful confirmed, and then the very next thing that happens is that the fraudulent powers of Ephesus are exposed, shamed, and confounded. The, the result is that the power of the gospel goes forward. The word goes forward, and all people everywhere have fear fall, fall upon them, and many believe. So what should our response be to this text? Well, I want our response to be very similar to the response of the Ephesians who witnessed all of these scenes take place. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. As you, family, recognize that the fraudulent powers of the world have no real power to save you. And that only Jesus Christ is, is the true Savior. 
what then should our response be? Number one, let's follow their lead. Number one, divulge your fraudulent saviors. Confess, give up, expose the fraudulent saviors that you have been running after in your life. In 1928, a man named George C. Parker was arrested. His crime? He was fraudulent selling, fraudulently selling the Brooklyn Bridge. He actually had a fake office and he made up fake credentials. He had a fake sign. He had a fake deed made up. He made up fake documents and he actually sold the Brooklyn Bridge to a number of different people and made a whole lot of money off of it. Not only did he sell the Brooklyn Bridge, but he also sold the Statue of Liberty. He sold Madison Square Garden and he sold Grant's tomb. This guy, George C. Parker, went down in history as one of the greatest frauds in U.S. history. And here, Magic Arts goes down as the greatest fraud in Ephesian history. I wonder what fraud will go down as the greatest fraud in your own life history. Maybe that would be pornography. What pornography has offered you and tried to sell you and the many times that you sought to buy something from pornography that it could never deliver the greatest fraud. Or maybe that would be fornication or adultery. Or maybe that would be materialism or greed. As you think of your own life and as you think of your own history, what has duped you too many times? What fraudulent savior have you gone after too many times? In response to this text, what we see them doing is they finally give up their fraudulent saviors. So it says, the text tells us that in verse 18 that they are confessing or divulging their magic practices. So saints, confess and divulge your own practices of pursuing fraudulent saviors. Please don't name them out loud right now, but what are they? I wonder if you could just go through a mental checklist of the various things that you have used as a fraudulent savior in your own life. Let me give you some examples, I think, culturally of what some fraudulent saviors may be. I think some, just to relate it to this text, magic arts, I think for some it certainly could be things like the occult or uh, mysticism or various approaches to spirituality that aren't in the Bible. Deuteronomy uh, outright condemns all witchcraft. In our own community, wearing stones or wearing crystals as this popular idea of promoting some kind of inner uh, healing or safety, it can seem like kind of a harmless sort of thing. However, uh, somebody once said that anything that seeks to manipulate the spiritual world can be categorized as witchcraft. Anything that would promise a connection with the spiritual outside of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as revealed to us through God's Word could be classified as witchcraft or at least an ungodly 
pagan approach to seeking significant safety in, in this life. However, I think for many of us, our fraudulent saviors are probably much more subtle than all of that. Uh, for some, it might be a boyfriend or a girlfriend seeking significance, seeking safety, seeking a sense of meaning and purpose in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Seeking something in another human being that only Jesus can give. For others, like I've already mentioned, it could be something like pornography. Seeking a satisfaction in pornography that only Jesus can give. For still others, it might be your spouse, who you love. But seeking some kind of protection, some kind of meaning in that, in that person that only Jesus can give. You know, we can look in other people, we can look for things uh, that only Jesus can give, essentially making a Savior out of the person that we most love. This may have happened to you, it certainly happened to me before, and I've probably done it as well. And the problem is this, is while you love your spouse, seeking to make them your Savior is a burden that they are not wired to bear. And they ultimately become a fraudulent savior for you because they can't produce what only Jesus can deliver. For some, still, it might be seeking inner peace through drinking, through smoking, through snorting, through whatever you can do to change your mindset. Now, here's the thing is, in the same way that the enemy made a mockery of the seven sons of Sceva, in the same way, as we pursue our fraudulent saviors in this world, the enemy makes a mockery of you. We cannot fight the spiritual forces that Paul talks about that are truly against us. We cannot fight them with fraudulent messiahs because they do not deliver. So look at the text. What do they do? Well, in verse 18, it says that a number of those uh, who had practiced magic arts brought their books and burned them in the sight of all. Now these, in verse 18, it says that they were believers. Meaning they were not unbelievers that were still practicing these magic arts. My assumption is, as I was studying and reading this text, is I think these are people who probably were converted in Paul's ministry, yet they were still clinging to some of these old cultural things. Old habits die hard, as they say. Meaning you can be a legit Christian, but still be dabbling with these fraudulent saviors that do not save now, what I'm encouraging you and calling you to do then, Christian, is to stop buying the Brooklyn Bridge. Is to recognize that you've been, you've been taken advantage of. You've been mocked. You've been shamed. They, they, they lied to you. These fraudulent saviors come along and, and they have given you promises that they did not deliver on. And oh, by the way, they cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. I could tell you story after story of people who have thought that they could find a sense of 
significance, a sense of hope, a sense of safety in a certain Savior, a fraudulent Savior. And they went after that and it ruined their life. That one night cost them more than they ever wanted to pay. And that's how these fraudulent saviors work. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. So therefore, there's nothing that flesh and blood can do for us in our spiritual fight. We have to go to one who is above, one who is greater, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Meaning, church, there is no amount of power that you can accumulate which would deliver the significance that you're looking for in life. There's no amount of sex that you can have that would ultimately give you the satisfaction that you are looking for. There's no amount of money that you can accrue that would give you the safety that you desire. Your significance, your satisfaction, and your safety can only be found in Jesus. So what do we do? Answer, burn it all to the ground. Destroy your fraudulent saviors. And verse 19 here tells us that that's exactly what they did. So as they're confessing and divulging their magic practices, in verse 19 it says that they brought all of their books and they built this massive bonfire and lit it up. And they burned, according to the text here, 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books. That's a whole lot of money. Two things. Number one, this tells you what your fraudulent spirituality costs you. It has costed you a lot. You have spent a lot of time pursuing these things. You've spent a, potentially even actual money pursuing these things. These things are costly. 50,000 pieces of silver in today's money would come out to about 137 years of wages. It would be 800,000 pieces of bread. Scholars say that it would feed a uh, hundred families for 500 days. Just imagine how much money they spent on these fraudulent saviors, on pursuing things that ultimately could not help them in this world. How much have you invested in these frauds? The things that you have gone after to find significance, safety, and satisfaction. Well, it also tells us how much Jesus is worth, doesn't it? Meaning they're willing to get rid of all of these things to follow Jesus. He's worth everything. Notice, it doesn't say that they sold their magic books on Facebook Marketplace. They didn't say, hey, how can I salvage some of this? How can I make the most of it? It doesn't even say that they kept some behind for a museum or to hang on to just as a reminder of their past or just in case on a rainy day they might need to go back to it, which is so often our case, isn't it? We don't fully close the door 
on some of these fraudulent saviors. Well, they closed the door. They burned it all to the ground. They took no souvenirs. They made no profit off of it. This was a solemn declaration for them that they were fooled. So what do we do with our fraudulent saviors? My answer, as I've already told you, is simply this. Burn it to the ground. Now, maybe not literally. Like, if your spouse is your fraudulent savior, don't burn your spouse to the ground. But maybe your spouse in and of herself or himself is not the problem. The problem is actually your own inordinate desire of what you want out of your spouse. Does that make sense? And so what we burn to the ground then is our inordinate desires. Now that might look like confessing to your spouse the ways that you have abused them. And they didn't even know it. I've been using you to find a sense of significance in my life that I could never find in you. And it's no fault of you. It's because I can only find that in Christ. Or maybe we need to confess that to our children. Or maybe even your church family confess ways that we've been trying to find a sense of savior out of people organizations places that are never wired to be your savior but only point you to the savior of christ and christ christ alone jesus says if your eye offends you pluck it out i think that's what they're doing burning their books They're plucking out their eye, if you would. They're saying there's nothing that is worth clinging to. This might mean that you dump the bottle that has deceived you. It might mean that you flush the weed. It might mean for some that you go to a detox program. It might mean for some that you say, I can't have an iPhone. Or if I'm going to have an iPhone, I need to have a whole lot of accountability built around it. I've got guys in our church who, have, who walk around with flip, flip phones and guys at their work laugh at them and make fun of them and they don't care. It might mean that you delete some ex's phone numbers off of your phone. I don't know what it means for you to burn to the ground your fraudulent saviors, but we must pluck out these eyes. and We must turn away from these things and say, I am no longer pursuing a fraudulent spirituality. Now, what do we replace them with? We simply replace them with trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's what we see happen here in verse 20. It says, in response to the word of the Lord, that they, they burn these things Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Word of the Lord there is a nickname for the gospel message. The message that Paul proclaimed. The message that was confirmed through signs as Paul proclaimed it. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That God is the creator God who is infinitely holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is so holy you can't wrap your mind around His holiness. And we have fallen from God. We are sinners, the Bible says. We are under then the wrath of God. His judgment is upon us for our sin. But God sent His Son into the world. And Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh, lived the life that I should have lived. 
He died the death that I should have died. When Jesus died on the cross, he took your judgment, the judgment that God had for you, he took that in his own body on the tree. Not just a piece of it, not just part of it, but he took all of God's wrath for your sin. And it buried him in the ground. But as many of you know, three days later, he got up from the dead, defeating death, defeating your sin, defeating darkness, defeating the spiritual powers of the world. And he says, hey, all who turn from their sins and trust in me will be forgiven of their sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness, freed from the the penalty of sin now, freed one day from not only the penalty of sin, but even the presence of sin forever and ever. That's good news, isn't it? That message, verse 20, continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's the response. We trust the gospel message. In the book of Mark chapter 1, when Jesus first appears on the scene in his ministry, he's at the temple and there's a man at the temple who is possessed with a demon. And when Jesus meets this demon, Jesus doesn't freak out. The demon freaks out. And I think this is interesting because we just went through October, and October is Halloween season, and you see all these demonic stuff, and, you know, and all of the movies about demons. The demons are the scary ones, right? Well, not in real life. Not when it comes to Jesus. In real life, when it comes to Jesus, when Jesus meets the demon, the demon freaks out. And the demon says, whoa, Who are you? Why have you come here? I know who you are. The Son of of God. Why have you come here? Have you come here, he asks, to destroy us. You know, Jesus says that no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then only then can he plunder the strong man's goods. That's a picture for Jesus' ministry. That Jesus is going into this world and defeating and destroying the strong man. Darkness. The powers of this world. We are not the strong man. Jesus is the strong man. And now that Jesus has defeated sin and death, Jesus then plunders that which once belonged to, to him, and that is you and I. The frauds of this world cannot do what Jesus does because they are powerless. And only Jesus has power. Jesus was not a fraud. You see, the fraud will try to sell you something that it cannot deliver. The fraud will charge you more than you're willing to pay. The fraud will make a promise that it won't come through on. But Jesus was not a fraud. The fraud. Jesus has what the frauds do not have, and that is love. Jesus loves you. It was love that kept Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the legitimate Savior who died. 
He gave his life so that you might live. And three days later, as the earth shook, graves opened up and Jesus rose from the dead. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Turn to Christ now. Come to the true, legitimate Savior and find in Him everything that you had once looked for in all of these frauds. Andrew Murray once said, a true revival means nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness and making God's love triumph in the heart. I wonder if anybody here is turning to fraudulent saviors. Let me just repeat it one more time. Fraudulent saviors do not save. In the book of Jeremiah, they're making altars. And Jeremiah says, look, these, these altars that you make, are, they're, they're, they're made by man's hands. Uh, they, they're carved by the, the hands of a craftsman. And then uh, craftsmen nail them into place. And then they're carried from one location to another. What he's saying is, is like, look, these things are our productions. Why are we worshiping the things that we carry? Why are we worshiping the things that we nail into place? We need a true Savior. Saviors that do not save. We need a Savior, listen to this, who will carry us when we can no longer go on. We need a Savior who is nailed into place for us when we should have died. Jesus is our true Savior. And this is why we sing songs about Jesus. Songs such as, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Or songs like, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Or songs such as, no scheme of man, no power of hell, can ever pluck me from His hand, for I am His, and He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Church, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this, of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But Paul later said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you turned to Him? Turn to Him. Remain with Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the fact that Jesus is the true Savior. God, we divulge the various things that we have run after in our own lives. Saviors that we have gone after that have promised some kind of deliverance. But do not ultimately deliver. Cannot deliver. Because they are frauds. God, we turn from them today and we turn to Christ. 
May the gospel increase and prevail mightily in our own lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.